Amen. I always appreciate the worship here, don't you? Just give them a hand of thanks again. And if you've got a Bible this morning, I want you to turn me to the book of John, chapter 1, and that's where we'll begin. You know, I was thinking about it this morning. Um, the first church I ever pastored was up here in this region that I personally pastored. I've been in ministry uh, 12 years on the staff of somebody else's church by then. But I remember we were having our first new members Sunday, and uh, I was really excited about it because our first chance to gather new members and share with them the vision of the church, you know. And so I got to church a little early, and I got prepared, and I waited, and the time came, and there was nobody there. And I waited another 30 minutes, nobody there, about 40 minutes. I finally went back in my office. I got down on my knees. I'd come from this large church in Atlanta. I was starting my very first church from scratch. And I thought, that's it, you know, that nobody's going to join my church. This is a miserable thing, failure, you know. And I, I worked through all my self-pity, and then I got up and kind of wiped my tears and got up and went back into the church, and somebody walked in, and I said, hey, you know, uh, I thought you guys might be here for the new members class. They said, well, we are, Pastor. I said, what are you talking about? They said, oh, daylight savings time. I bet you forgot. <laughs> and we ended up with 60 new people that day. <laughs> so... You know, moving the clock, I don't know, I always end up on this Sunday, they're going to move the clock, but I'd rather be in the fall back than the spring forward Sunday, amen? You know, I was praying this morning about what to share and praying over the weekend, and I never quite know exactly which direction I'm going to go. They asked me today, what's your, what's your uh, sermon title? I said, I don't have one. And that's because I really like to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and try and follow what I feel like the Lord's guiding me to do. And I felt this morning just to share this message for the next few minutes. And I want us to start in John chapter 1. This is a somewhat familiar verse of Scripture, but maybe I'm going to give you a little different perspective on it this morning. John chapter 1, verse 43, this is the story of Philip and Nathanael. It says, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, you come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, from this point forward, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This passage of Scripture is interesting to read, and it shares a lot with us about the insight of the Lord and the human nature that Jesus had spiritual insight and knowledge of who Nathaniel was before he ever met him. The Holy Spirit had already spoken to him about Nathaniel, and when he saw Nathaniel, he was able to share with him that the Spirit of God within him had shown him Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree. And Nathaniel was so touched by that knowledge that he instantly proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus said, 
does that move you so much, just me being able to tell you that? He says, I tell you, you're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see, and then he makes this remarkable statement. He says, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, for our Western ears and our Gentile ears, we hear that and immediately we we think, well, that's an interesting picture. But to the Jewish ear, that was not an interesting picture. It was the evoking of a very specific story of the Old Testament, perhaps one of the most and best known and repeated and memorized and understood stories in all of the Bible because it evoked the story of when Jacob was running from Esau And he ended up in the middle of a wilderness. And in the middle of that wilderness, he went and found a rock and made a pillow out of it. And he laid down and he went to sleep. And while he was sleeping, he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw a ladder reaching up into heaven. And he saw angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. And when he woke up, he made this comment. It's recorded over in the book of Genesis chapter 28. He said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethel, house of God. And in verse 22, he says, And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Jacob named that place Bethel because when he was dreaming, he had a picture of a gate of heaven. And he saw the angels of God. He saw heaven and earth touching in that that place. He saw this movement between the realm of the spirit and the realm of the natural. He saw something taking place that he had never imagined before. And when he woke up, it so struck him that literally the name of the place which formerly had been called Luz, L-U-S, L-U-Z, he now renamed it Bethel, and to this day it's still considered Bethel. When Jesus then says to Nathanael, are you so amazed because you see that I have insight into who you are? I tell you, you're going to see greater things than this, Nathanael. You're going to see that I have brought to earth In myself, the house of God. I am Bethel. The angels ascending and descending upon me are evidence that I am going to become for you the gate of heaven. That I literally am, not just in figurative or in symbol, I am the house of God. God's own spirit, his life dwells in me. And I am here to bring revelation to you and to express to you the very nature and character of God. And for the Jews who were there, that picture was something very evident to them. They understood it instantly, that it was a picture of Bethel. You see, Jesus was saying, I'm not just come as a teacher. I'm not just come as a instructor, as a guide. I'm not just here to be a counselor. I'm not just here to be a religious leader. I'm not even here to found a religion. He says, I've come literally as the house of God. I am the dwelling place of God on earth. God lives in me. I am God incarnate. And his spirit and his life are in me. And what you're about to see, more than you can ever imagine, is you're about to see God working through a man 
God living in a man, his presence, his power there. And in seeing this, you're going to see things that you've never imagined, and they did. From that moment forward, every place Jesus went, whenever evil and Jesus met, evil lost, Jesus won. Wherever death and Jesus met, death lost, and Jesus won. Wherever demonic oppression was found, demonic oppression lost, and Jesus won. Wherever storms and winds and waves were threatening the destruction of God's people, Jesus won and the storms lost. What they saw was something they had never seen before. They saw the presence of God working through a man, God's spirit alive inside of a man. But what's remarkable about this is that this was always the intent that God had for man was to be the temple and the vessel into which he would place his spirit. This was always God's intention. And I'm fully convinced that Jesus did not only come to reveal God to man, but Jesus came to reveal man to men. He came not only to show us what God was like, but he showed us and he came to reveal to us what man was supposed to be like as God intended him to be. The Bible says that though he was God, he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to or grasped, but he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant and he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus laid down not his divinity, but his prerogatives of divinity. He laid down his rights and privileges as God to become a man in whom God's spirit dwelt. And from that moment on, Jesus made an interesting statement. He said, the works that I do, they're not my own. I'm not coming up with these works. These are the works the Father is doing through me. The words that I speak, they're not my own words. They're the words the Father is giving me to speak. I do nothing of my own, Jesus said. I only do those things which please him. In essence, what Jesus was doing was not just revealing to us who God was to men, but he was also revealing to us what man was supposed to be, was a container of, a vessel of, the temple of God's spirit, moving in perfect harmony with what the spirit of God wanted to be doing on the earth through him. And Jesus began to show man what man was meant to be. He didn't operate out of some divinity that was something untouchable to man, but he operated out of obedience to and yieldedness to his Father's Spirit within his heart. He was the house of God. God was dwelling in him, but he was not directing God. God was directing him by the power of his Spirit. And because Jesus obeyed and listened to and responded to the voice of the Spirit perfectly, everything he touched and everything he did showed what would happen if God would be allowed to work through a human being the way he intended to work. I want to suggest to you that Jesus did not just come to show us the nature and character of God, though he did that in a magnificent way, but he came to show us that the nature and character of God is intended to come and take up residence inside of us. This is the one message I have. There's no other. Christ in you is the hope of glory. The only hope that glory will ever be expressed through us is if we realize it must be his spirit that does the expressing. It's not something that can flow from us. It can only flow through us. That's why the Bible says in the book of Romans, 
that it is of him, it is through him, and it is to him that all things exist. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, to whom does someone get glory? Who gets glory? The person who gets glory is the person who does something. If you do something, if I do something, I get the glory. But if God's doing something, then he's the only one who gets the glory. And Jesus constantly referred to the Father as the one to whom all glory belonged for everything he did. Every act, every word that he spoke, every miracle that took place, every act of obedience, every remarkable thing that happened in all of his life, to the Father went all the glory. Why? Because it was the Father doing the work. Jesus was simply the tool in the Father's hand. He was a man in the hands of God's Spirit. He was God incarnate, the only Son of God, the eternal Son of God, made man unlike any of us will ever be. But he laid down the prerogatives and the rights and privileges of that position in order to become a man with God's Spirit inside, a man who did not direct his own life, a man who did not choose his own way, a man did not uh, try and work his life for God, but a man through whom God could work his life through him. And in so doing, he revealed to us not only the nature of God, but he revealed to us the intent that God had for man, that we would become the vessels through which his spirit would operate. You know, it's interesting that later on, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he said in John chapter 14, as he was heading towards the end of his mission on earth, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he said, for in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was talking to Nathanael at the beginning of his ministry, he said, I am, and I want to evoke in your idea the perspective of the house of God, an opening between heaven and earth that's taken place where the realm of the spirit and the realm of the natural are able to operate in and through me. And what you're about to see, what's about to take place, Nathaniel, the things you can't even imagine you're about to see are the result of his spirit working through me. Now he says, as he's at the end of his ministry, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places, and I'm going to prepare one of those places for you. In essence, he was saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you in me, because I am Bethel. I am the house of the Lord, and I'm going to make a place for you in me. So that in me, the same thing you've seen happening through me can begin to happen through you as you begin to become the vessel and the container of my life as I've been the vessel and container of my father's life. So that my spirit, my life, my works, my words, my ways can begin to be revealed through you as you learn to yield to me in you in the same way I learned to yield to my father in me. 
Again, that's why Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. The life I'm now living, Paul the Apostle said, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why Jesus said in John 15, just after he said this in John 14, about I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. In John 15, he said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you abide in me, if you dwell, if you live, if you take up residence in me, and my word, my spirit, my life abides in you, then you're going to start to see fruit coming out of your life that you could never have produced. And when that happens, my father's going to come and he's going to trim back more of you so that there'll be an opportunity for more of me. And then eventually you're going to produce more fruit and then ultimately you're going to start to see yourself producing much fruit and then you'll show yourself to be my disciple. See, what Jesus was saying is, I haven't come to found a religion a society of nice people who gather together to admire one another. I haven't come to form a political union. I haven't come to, to form an economic society. I haven't come to form anything. I've come to form my life in you, inside of you. That's why it says in Galatians 4.19, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. You see, in the same way the Father was formed in the life of Christ and the Spirit of God took up residence inside the life of Christ and Jesus laid down his prerogatives and his rights and his privileges as God to become a man who was infilled with the power of God's Spirit and that spiritual life was then expressed through him in his humanity in perfect obedience. He now says... I want to put my spirit in you. I want to put my life in you. You know, for years it used to confuse me. Okay, how is it that Jesus is in me and I'm in him? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. How is it that I can be in Jesus, but Jesus is in me? How does that work? I heard people use different illustrations. You know, one person told me about a bucket. If you take a bucket and you put it in the ocean, well, the ocean's in the bucket, but the bucket's in the ocean. Okay, well, that, that works, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I heard other, other illustrations, but you know, one day I was just reading John chapter 15. And Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you abide in me, in other words, if you get engrafted into me, the very next thing that's going to happen within seconds after you get engrafted into me is my life is going to start to flow through you. You're going to be in me because I'm going to be in you. And suddenly what seems so complex to me seems so simple to me. That's why it says in Romans chapter 11, it says, if the first fruit is holy... The lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, speaking of Israel, and you being a wild olive tree, speaking of your goofiness and mine, if you, a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them, you've become a partaker of the root 
and of the fatness of the olive tree. Or as one version says, you become a part of the life-nourishing sap of the vine. It's an amazing thing that if you take a branch, we've talked about it before, and you cut it off, that branch is dead because it has no source of life. You can take beautiful flowers and cut them off and set them, and they're magnificent. They're beautiful. They smell good, but they're dead. Just give them a little while. You're going to find that out. When we got cut off from the life of God, when man no longer had the connection and never took advantage of the connection in the garden to eat from the tree of life and live forever with the life of God in him, but instead chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and was booted out and kept away from the tree of life, and we now come back, from that moment on, the human race was living as dead men, spiritually cut off from the life of God, without hope, without God in the world. But now suddenly we find ourselves reconnected. And the minute you take a dead branch that has been broken off and you graft it into a living vine, that vine life begins to bring life to the branch. The branch looks the same way as it did before. But it's not the same. And the longer that connection remains, the more the life-nourishing sap of that vine is going to come up into the life of that branch, and it's going to begin to change the nature of that branch. Christianity is not about organizational capacity and skill to get together to come up with a certain set of rules and regulations that we all adhere together to and decide we're going to govern our lives by. No, Christianity is about an organic union with the very life of Christ himself that becomes as real and as progressive and as transformative within us over time as it was when Nathaniel looked at Jesus thinking maybe here's another prophet and Jesus said, no, what you've met today is the house of God. And what you're about to see is what happens when a man becomes surrendered to and yielded to the life of God's Spirit within. You know, from that moment on, it's fascinating to me that I never saw Jesus come up with a plan from that point on. He never sat down and said, okay, guys, disciples, here's our three, five, and ten-year plan for the future. What Jesus did rather is the disciples went to sleep and Jesus went to pray. They'd be in one city and a great revival would break out. The Spirit of God would begin to move and there was a sense of the transformational power of the Lord there. The next day they'd go looking for Jesus. They couldn't find him. Finally, they climb up on a hill and they find you. Jesus, the people are waiting for you. Miracles are taking place. Wonderful things are happening down here. We've got to get something going. We've got to get a marketing team together. We've got to get this thing organized. We need to get on the radio, put some ads in the paper. But Jesus said, no, we're going to go to another town. Another town? Isn't this what we came for? Look what's happening. Why are we going to another town? It wasn't because Jesus came up with another plan. It's because Jesus listened to what the Father said and obeyed him. You know, when I was sitting here this morning, one of the things the Lord was saying to me, and I feel like it's especially for some of the young people that are in this room, is that there's a tendency to believe that the way that you leave a legacy that is meaningful in this world is that you have to have a a master plan. That's to be the the grand plan, I call it. I got it all figured out. This is what it's going to be like. This is the next 20 years of my life. But can I tell you, in all honesty, You may achieve a lot by doing that. 
Jesus didn't say, you apart from me are incapable of doing anything. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The way I translate that is, you're gonna, you can do a lot, but it's not going to amount to anything apart from me. Men can put together some amazing things. I mean, we can build some stuff. We can unite some stuff. We can create some stuff. We can make a splash. We can do some remarkable things with our creativity and our ingenuity because we're created in the very image and likeness of the Lord. We have extraordinary gifts that no other creature on this earth has. We can do a bunch of stuff. But the question is whether what we do has a lasting purpose. You see, Jesus didn't seem intent on doing a lot of stuff or even intent on doing big stuff. As a matter of fact, when big stuff started to happen, he frequently left the scene. Because what Jesus was interested in was doing only one thing. He was only interested in doing what his father was telling him to do that day, at that time, at that moment. And because Jesus did that perfectly, something we'll never obtain to, because he did that perfectly, whatever he did revealed the Father in remarkable ways to the world. But Jesus didn't then capitalize on what happened last week and say, you know, that worked really well. Let's do that again. What Jesus just did is he said, Father, what's next on your agenda? What's on your plan? And in three years, 30 of which we know very little, if anything, about, in three years, the Bible says Jesus did so many other things that are not written in this book that if they were written down, he supposed all the libraries in all of the world could not contain the volumes that would be written. Only 40 of his works were written down. And if you start in Matthew and you go to Revelation, it's not a very big book. But I wonder who will ever live a life that was more meaningful. Why? Because of some grand plan? No, because of a daily obedience to his father. He just did what the father told him to do. In one situation, the Bible says that the presence of the Spirit of the Lord was present to heal everyone who was there. In another situation, the Bible says he walked through the middle of a bunch of people who were gathered around a pool, went to one man. Why? Because that's what the Father told him to do. He wasn't, he wasn't coming up with the plan. He was listening to the Father's voice. He said, the works that I do, they're not my own. I don't do anything on my own. And then Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do anything. Nothing that is going to have that lasting effect. So what I've learned to discern and discover is that in the same way that the real purpose that Jesus had on earth was to be the container of his father's life and then not to come up with a plan, not to gather a committee, but to listen to the father's voice and be obedient to him on a daily basis. And by step by step, by moment by moment, he fulfilled the Father's purpose and obeyed him and did all that the Father gave him to do until he was on the cross and said, it's finished. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. On the cross, he finished it. Now what does he say to us? As the Father sent me, 
I'm sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Well, how did the Father send him? The Father sent him to be obedient on a daily basis to his voice. Not to come up with a grand plan, not to come up with some idea of what the future is going to hold, not try and discern the times and figure out how I can organize my life and put together my gifts and my calling in order to do the thing that would be the most impacting at the time because, in fact, I don't think we know that. I've lived long enough now in ministry to know that some of the things that I thought were going to be the most impacting left the least lasting effect. And moments that I thought were so insignificant that they'd be forgotten by the afternoon. Thirty years later, I see the impact of that moment. We are not the best discerners of what matters to God. He even tells us in his word that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and how different are they? As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how different they are. So what I've learned over the course of my life is that in the same way that Jesus was Bethel, he was the house of God. And now Jesus has said to me, Mike, in me, I've built a place for you. You can move in as a branch to my vine so that I can move into your branch through my life. And if you'll stop trying to figure out all of life, and you'll just develop an intimate fellowship with me and just listen on a daily basis to what I want you to do. It may seem so unimportant to you at the time, and you may get to heaven before you ever know the impact. But when you look back, you might be surprised to discover that I've guided your steps moment by moment, day by day, to live a life of eternal purpose. I want to just say that my burden this morning as I was sitting here was for somebody who's in this room, and I, I feel like it's anybody, maybe in a sense all of us. Some of you, you have reached an age where you feel like all of your contribution is pretty much behind you and you're just kind of holding on to see how much longer you last. Can I tell you, Jesus transformed the entirety of the human race in three years. Three years of just listening to his father's voice and doing what his father told him to do. If you count yourself out, what you, who you're counting out is Jesus himself. What could Jesus do through you in 12 months if you stopped living in the past about what you once were or stopped fearing the future about what's coming and just said, Jesus, how can I get out of your way today? Is there any assignment you have for me before the sun sets? Is there a phone call you need me to make? Is there somebody in this room you want me to talk to and just share something that was on my heart for them? Jesus lived the most significant life the planet has ever known. And in comparison to what many would think of significance, he did so few things. And from his own testimony, nothing 
did he do on his own? For others of you, you're at that point in life where you're looking ahead to life and you're wondering, what's the secret of a meaningful life? What's the secret of making an impact? And you go to a movie and you hear about somebody that made this impact and you see some hero that you read about. Oh, this is the kind of, this is the kind of impact I want to make. And you decide, I'm just going to determine, I'm going to be this person. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to accomplish this stuff. But in the end, there is no provision for you to live your life for Christ. The only provision God's made is for Christ to live his life through you. So as long as you're living yours, he's going to let you. Go ahead, have at that. Go as long with that as you want to go. When you get to the end of you, you'll be at the beginning of me. And when you get to the beginning of me, what you're going to find is, I don't think like you think. I don't do things always the way you would do them. I may send you on a two-hour drive to talk to ten people. And I may tell you to decline an invitation to speak to 10,000. Because what you don't know that I do know is there's somebody among those ten who's going to reach 100,000 people that you may never know about or live to see. Just come along with me And let me show you what life can be. Lord Jesus, I just want to draw near to you right now for a moment. Lord, I know sometimes I frustrate people because we love a plan. And we love to know clearly what's required of us. But Lord, more and more I've learned that you don't want to give us a map and you don't even want to give us a GPS. You just want to get in the car and say, drive, and I'll tell you when to turn. We don't like that. We like having some control. Because when we're in control, we can kind of adjust the, the speed. We can change the route. But when we're dependent upon you, what we're going to find out Maybe not in the first or the second or the tenth or the hundredth time we obey your still small voice, but we're going to find out that you do eternal things through people who will just yield themselves through you and let your presence and your power work in us. There's not a person in this room that could not do something that would last and reverberate through all eternity in the next six months as important or significant as anything they've ever done in their life if they just would allow you to do it through them. Lord, I want to learn today more and more how to find my dwelling place in you and to let you find your dwelling place in me, how to let the life-nourishing sap of your life operate and be released through me so that in the breaths that I have and the beats of my heart that are remaining to me, I'm not chasing after some mythology of what constitutes significance, but rather I'm listening and yielding moment by moment, day by day, to what matters to you, trusting you not only to guide me, but to do through me what you lead me to. 
This is life, really. And in these days, how desperately we need to hear your voice. I want us to prepare our hearts for communion. And as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, I can't think of a more beautiful and a more intimate picture in all of the Bible than the picture of this memorial meal. Because in this itself, Jesus is already communicating to us. The relationship I want with you is something much more than adherence to ideas. I want my life and yours to become one. I want my life to find expression through your life. This is why I've gathered you at this table. Let's prepare the elements if you'd like to do that. The Bible says that as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And then he blessed it saying, this is my body. It's been broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this is a cup of a new covenant a New Testament, I'm making it with you in my life's blood. And I say to you, I will not drink again from this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And I would say, behold the cup of salvation, behold the cup of redemption, behold the cup of new life. Behold the cup of the Lord. As often as you drink this cup, you show forth his death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup. Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that as we gather around this table of the Lord and as we listen to these last songs of worship, that our hearts would just be stirred, Lord, not perplexed, but our hearts would be stirred by the possibility that perhaps the very most important and significant days of our life are yet before us if we would just learn in some small measure to listen and to yield to your daily guidance with no thought about the importance or unimportance of what you lead us to do or do through us, but only with the thought that it would issue from the source of your life and not from our own plans. And let's see what the year ahead may hold for us in Christ.